Some say that voids cannot exist, that nature abhors a vacuum. I say fuck that. I say nature loves a vacuum. Where are you going to put your shit without a vacuum? Without the void, there is no room for nature. So, if you want to be natural, the first step is to embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 121 of Embrace the Void where linear time is really more of a suggestion. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is a particularly peculiar situation. Before I get to that, though, I want to say a quick word about Brexit. I mentioned a few episodes ago that I feel like I have like little to add to the discourse around politics at the moment besides something like, you know, epistemic crisis, boy, I don't know. And the news from England really kind of underscores that. I... I see a lot of folks claiming one strategy is bad and another would have worked. And my gut is that these are attempts to control a situation that is way beyond our control. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the coming year. And I do understand that unfettered despair is probably not a winning strategy either. But I do think it's worth sitting for a moment with the fact that there may not be a winning strat. And we may be dependent on a lot of luck in any of this turning around. Um, so that's that's where I'm at emotionally at this moment. Um, okay, so now on to today's guest. Um, I met this individual via Twitter uh, where they run an account that answers in the character of Aristotle. Um, I thought it'd be fun to have them on, and they preferred to do so in the voice of Aristotle as well. Consider this basically a fun take on our Better Know a Philosopher series. So let's get flourishing. My guest this week is Aristotle of Stagira, student of Plato and developer of virtue ethics. Aristotle, would you like to say hi to the void? Now, you've put me in a bit of an awkward position. I don't believe in the void. Um, mm. But if you mean... That metaphorically for a state of aporia, um, uh, I, I would be happy to say hi to anybody that finds themselves in that state. I bet that you believe in some versions of the void, maybe not the the sort of physical absence kind of void, but I bet you are sympathetic to the existentialist um, horror kind of versions of the void that maybe your philosophies seek to avoid. Yeah, I, I, certainly the... Um, my approach in the ethics is directed at 
giving us a sense of um, what we are here for and what we are uh, by nature. Um, I think that the understanding of human beings as radically unknowable or as radically free, um, which gives rise to a lot of the concerns that come up in existentialism and, and, and the sort of, sort of sense of horror, um, really are the product of ideas that antedate me, um, mm -hmm. such as the will, um, uh, certain forms of skepticism. Uh, and, and so I, I don't think I ever really confronted that horror Interesting. Um, in a straightforward way. But. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm curious to see how some of your work you feel like um, sort of has evolved in response to the things that have come along um, antecedent to you. I, I appreciate you coming on um, in this newfangled kind of medium. Um, I do really enjoy a lot of your work, and I'm happy to ch uh, work through, chat through a couple of the the things that you address. Maybe to get us started, do you want to tell folks a little bit um, sort of about your of your surviving works, which of them you find sort of personally satisfying? Are there ones that like you feel have insights that you think are still personally valuable today? So I, I think the Nicomachean Ethics is, is um, mm -hmm. it's certainly my best put together work. Uh, the, the texts that you have are reference works um, meant to be read by instructors at my school, by myself, just as a form of um, compiling and collecting my research, and uh, by former students as a sort of mnemonic um, mm -hmm. as, as they left the school and, and went about their lives. And the Nicomachean Ethics is certainly the best put together. Um, some of them are, like the book you call the Metaphysics, are not, um, they're not the best edited pieces of work. Uh, okay. Uh, but my favorite, my personal favorite has always been the physics. Hmm. It's uh, the, the sort of starting point for a lot of my thinking about all, all sorts of different kinds of problems. Interesting. Yeah, because I do find like one of the universal themes, and I, I, I personally prefer the Nicomachean Ethics as well. I did my undergrad thesis on it. Um, I think it's one of the most important pieces of ethical writing that's out there, and we'll talk about it quite a bit. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the other things a little bit first. You really seem to love putting things into taxonomies. It mm -hmm. seems like you have, you have a, a fancy for categorization. Do you really think that the world can be cleaved at the joint through categories? Yes. I, I, so the, the, the sort of fever of taxonomy um, didn't start with me. It was a favorite pastime in the academy. Um, and Plato had developed a method of taxonomy, uh, or really his students had elaborated it to the point of madness. But he developed <laughs> a... a a form of taxonomy um, having to do with bifurcation. It's the sort of thing you find in the sophist um, mm -hmm. where one begins with um, say animal. And then mm -hmm. uh, we, we divide that into the feathered and the not feathered. And among the feathered, we divide that into the pale and the not pale. And among the, the pale feathered animals, we divide that into the um, water going and, <laughs> <laughs> um, not water going and so on. Right. And I, I the, so, so, so something to be said against the system, I called it a, a little bit of a form of madness is I, I think that there is no hope of ever arriving at um, a description of an actual animal um, um, of, of arriving at a concrete form in this way. Uh, it, it's a way of sorting endlessly through genera. 
Um, <laughs> so it's like but, a Zeno's paradox for categorization. Yeah, <laughs> yes, quite. And then, but something to be said for it is that it is an attempt to bring the diversity of the natural world into a kind of rational order. Mm-hmm. And that is in the spirit of natural science right there. Um, and I, I, that's something I very much endorse um, and mm-hmm. uh, something that I would try to preserve. Um, it, it, it's a conception of the rational order of diversity um, that I think is too dialectical, um, too insensitive to the mm-hmm. particularities um, that we encounter. But um, to study the natural world is to do something like that. I think that taxonomy may, we, we, we may ultimately decide against things like taxonomy as a way to um, establish a sort of scientific understanding of a diversity. Mm-hmm. But we have to do it somehow. There's no avoiding that that task, even if even if taxonomies end up being a bad way to do it. Uh, the, the way that I approached taxonomy was to see something like functional analogs in animals. Mm-hmm. Um, one animal has a lung, another animal has an analog of a lung, and we taxonomize animals in terms of um, sets of functionally analogous systems that they have. Yeah. And I thought that this was a better approach, and I think it has been picked up to some extent. Yeah, I think I generally agree, and I think that you're right that it is a necessary part of the the game that we are playing here in this world to try to put things. We just we just did an episode on discordianism, so I'm stuck in thinking about the way that they view sort of the the underlying true chaos of reality, and then the frames mm-hmm. that we put on it to sort of by which certain things appear ordered and disordered, and this is all sort of a a kind of postmodernist almost critique of taxonomies. Um, and I, I'm sort of I'm sympathetic to the problems that you are raising, and at the same time the the necessity to push on with these problematic structures. So I'm curious what you think about sort of modern taxonomies today. Do you feel like we've uh, gotten better or worse in the past two thousand years with regard to these kinds of issues? Are you familiar, for example, with the dreaded sandwich wars? I am. The approach in the sandwich wars has been, has been uh, uh, in my experience, a bit haphazard. Um, I, uh, of course, sandwiches aren't substances, and so I don't think mm-hmm. a rational taxonomy of them is actually possible, but it, it, it is nevertheless a good demonstration of method. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's not hard for me to see what position I would take. Um, the question, for example, is a hot dog a sandwich? Uh, mm-hmm. That is, I, I, I take it that it serves many of the same functions as a sandwich. It, um, we eat it when we eat sandwiches. It's a convenient way of packaging many different kinds of food into something that one can hold with one, one's hands. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, functionally speaking, it looks like a sandwich to me. Um, and I would oppose anybody that suggested that because of the shape of the bread or something, some purely material feature, um, that it's not a sandwich. As to more serious taxonomies of the sort that we find in biology, um, Mm -hmm. I I think that the approach taken today is an excellent approach. Um, I I pride myself in thinking that it's very much picked up on the idea of um, the functional features and uh, Mm -hmm. of organisms. Um, That has become inflected with um, the issue of uh, evolutionary descent, um, which my 
view was not. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it, 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 I, I can't, as it were, claim credit for the modern sure. approach to taxonomy. But I, I, I'm also worried that the modern approach, I mean, the modern approach to taxonomy is itself worried about this, um, a kind of confusion and skepticism about the concept of a species um, mm-hmm. to the extent that there's something unserious about attempts to do taxonomy. There's a belief that there's something ultimately fictional about it. Uh, and that worries me, but I understand why it's such a worry. Mm-hmm. Given why the, there's a tension there, at least. Yeah, the modern synthesis of genetic science and evolutionary theory makes mm-hmm. that a re- really difficult problem. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You mentioned a term there that you've used a couple of times now, substance. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you understand the concept of substance and whether you think it's still an important concept in our attempts to understand the world. You know, it took a bit of a beating, I feel like, to some extent in, in modern science, but I'm not sure whether you feel like it's still important. Mm. I do. I, I, it's one of the things I, I, I would think we should hold on to. Mm-hmm. The question, what is a substance, is really the question that anybody would ask when you ask them, what is it ultimately that's real? Um, is it the quantum manifold? Is it the atoms, um, mm-hmm. the particles smaller than atoms? Uh, w- what are the, the real things as opposed to mere assemblages of real things or um, properties of real things, that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. I, I, I take it that physics does not trade in a conception of substance anymore. It, uh, uh, nor does it trade in causality or time, or sorry, mm-hmm. or change, um, um, or any of those sorts of things. It, uh, uh, and so it's become, to my mind, a highly geometrical mathematical science. I, I think that there's nothing wrong with this at a certain stage of inquiry. But my worry is that ultimately there will come the question when physics is complete or to the extent that it ever becomes complete. Um, what is this a science of? Mm-hmm. And I think then we will have to confront the question, what are the natural substances? What What is it that, that is real such that this is a science of that thing? Yeah, I wonder, uh, we've been toying a lot on this show with the idea of real simplicator as being actually a useful uh, description of things sometimes, or maybe if it's, you know, like if you say that we have to drill all the way down, right, the quantum manifold or this, you know, the quarks or whatever is at the very bottom of it. And then Mm -hmm. we have to call that thing real. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. if that's maybe just like only one use of and maybe not the most illuminating use of the concept of real. I mean, I understand the importance of it in that we feel like if we can get down to the most fundamental substrate and manipulate that substrate, then we can manipulate the very fabric of reality, as it were. Um, mm. But I'm not sure that we want that we necessarily should think of that as being, you know, the only or supreme version thing of thing that is real or something like that. I, I very much agree. I mm-hmm. I think that the attempt to find the ultimate substances in the materially simple things in the world is um, is doomed. Uh, the, and I, 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 I think the fact that it, it looks like there may be no ultimately simple material constituents of things um, mm-hmm. is a part of that doom. I, so for me, a substance is first and foremost a living thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and substances, as far as uh, on my understanding, are something 
where the thing has on its own or as it were independently uh, a, a sort of base ground of intelligibility um, um, a source of its own motions and rests uh, a source of its mm-hmm. own character within itself um, and that and that ultimately when we look for the substances we have to look at things that are from a material perspective quite complex mm-hmm. i i still hold out hope for that in a sense um that is when it comes down to the question what does natural science actually study i hope that we can come back to the answer that what it actually studies are the living things around us um, and that physics mm-hmm. is an important part of that study but the idea that physics will itself reach an in a naturally and independently intelligible subject matter is something that I doubt. Hmm, interesting. Well, so we started to edge a little bit into uh, something that I want to spend some time on here, which is how uh, any, if any of your views have updated in light of the past sort of several thousand years of acquired knowledge, other things that maybe you want to get out early in, in terms of things that you recognize <laughs> as being mistakes, let's say, or errors in previous judgment that you want to correct? Well, I I think people sometimes assume that the part of the modern scientific outlook um, mm-hmm. that most would most disturb me is the uh, theory of evolution. And that's not, that's not true. The, the thing that really disturbs me is the modern theory of astronomy. Um, my view of uh, what you might call mechanics mm-hmm. was a, uh, a view about motion within a fluid. Um, and I think the thought now is that that has turned out to be a special case, um, or at least, say, Newton th- took motion within a fluid to be a special case of motion more generally, which obeyed principles of inertia um, that were foreign to my thinking. Um, and... Uh, a, a part of that development was a reinterpretation mm-hmm. of the nature of the eternal motion of the heavens. Um, first, apparently it's not eternal, uh, is the thought nowadays. And second, it's not necessarily self-motion. Mm-hmm. M- motion within a fluid or motion understood as motion within a fluid um, requires a continuous impetus in order to <laughs> remain going. And... Um, um, Newtonian motion does not. I think the more sophisticated theories that w- we have now are maybe irrelevant to this distinction, but um, mm-hmm. astronomy is not the world of the eternal. Uh, right. And that was a very, very deeply central part of my um, my philosophy. It was, maybe I can carry the point across this way. Um, I did not think that there was any argument concerning theology that did not pass through astronomy, that astronomy is the only appropriate way to approach theology, which is ultimately mm. the science of being in its highest that's, sense. That's interesting. It's not, um, I can see how I guess maybe the astrologers would probably also agree with you in some ways on that front. Um, and I do want to talk about religion a little bit, but I feel like the the motions of the heavens is not probably the thing that People will probably most be curious about whether you would want to update your views on. I feel mm-hmm. like there are some other <laughs> social issues where I think people are going to 
want to be a little bit more curious about sort of especially you you, you get brought up on, on the regular for arguing for example in favor of just war for the purposes of enslaving natural slaves mm-hmm. um i don't know if maybe you want to address the concept of natural slaves and how that might be in a not fully formed version of your functionalist kind of worldview so i i, I think people are often a bit rosy about the way that this would go uh, that is the, as it were, rehabilitation into the modern world, of my views. Uh-huh. Um, I, so my, my thought about a natural slave is not that a natural slave is somebody whom it is okay to enslave. My thought was that a natural slave is somebody who lives as a slave no matter what their condition is. And the question is just, to whom do they live? Uh, to whom do they serve? You know, who do they serve? And uh, uh, the idea that a war could be just, just in virtue of enslaving those that are unwilling to submit mm-hmm. is the idea that um, you could have a people or a community that is unable to rule itself. Mm-hmm. And a war could be just, just insofar as it imposes some kind of rule on those people. Um, I understand kind of colonialism that, in a sense. Yes. I, I, and I understand that that is um, um, not a popular idea nowadays, though I, I do observe that it's still a popular foreign policy, um, especially among the Americans who frequently seem to want to invade countries that they deem to be um, incapable of ruling themselves. That's fair. I'll give you that. The other day, a a general saying we don't, uh, uh, that we, that is, we the Mm -hmm. Americans, don't invade um, authoritarian states to make them democratic, and we don't invade poor states to make them rich. We invade violent states to make them peaceful. That there's something mm-hmm. about ruling and pacifying that is a justification for war. So that that idea is not has not entirely fallen out of favor. Um, you you asked another question about the role of the idea of the slave in um, mm-hmm. my functionalist outlook and in 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 my ethics generally. I I acknowledge that the modern world has come to a conception of human beings wherein all human beings, regardless of their ability to rule themselves, because I don't think it is entirely in doubt that um, some people at least do not rule themselves, whether or not they can. Um, are, you mean an ability to control their own behavior kind of way? An, an ability to lead a happy life on their own okay. mm-hmm. Um That all people, including those sorts of people, have a kind of moral worth that makes... Mm-hmm. Um, the the deprivation of their freedom a wrong and an injustice and i respect that i i uh as 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 a development of the modern view um and i respect its empirical success i'm uh i'm an empiricist when it comes to ethics and so that that that's important to me mm-hmm. i am not optimistic about incorporating that view into my own in an easy way Hmm. Um, for on my understanding of ethics i think the closest thing closest way to translate my view into something like the modern language is to say that i believe that moral worth is earned Mm -hmm. it's something to be achieved um and i'm a greek uh the worst thing you could say to a Greek, the worst fighting word you could deliver to a Greek gentleman is to say, you human being. 
So uh-huh. the, the idea that moral worth was a kind of achievement, something that humanity provided you nothing of, but that you had to achieve over and above your humanity, um, is it's a deeply Greek notion, um, but it's one that I shared. And I'm reluctant to... I'm reluctant to endorse a, a project like, for example, that of Martha Nussbaum, to sort of extend my uh, conception of virtue and excellence and happiness um, directly into um, one in which all human beings could be seen to possess some kind of moral worth, as opposed to simply those who've achieved it through their actions. Yeah, so I can understand that kind of tension, and I'm curious if you couldn't so as as someone who is sympathetic to your virtue theories we'll talk about here in just a second uh i also want to reconcile it in a kind of pluralist framework with other kinds of value and i do think that there's a sense in which there is something like this kind of earned ethical value that i'm that you're talking about but it seems like that's compatible to me with there being other senses in which you know all lives are valuable in some kind of way and that like you know, often what we're actually experiencing is, you know, the the reality of these competing or, or not if not competing than than sort of non-reducible values. Mm. Does that seem at all like something that you could potentially sign on board with? Well, I, I certainly think some kind of synthesis is important. Um, mm-hmm. I can see that from the modern perspective, there's something deeply wrong with my ethics in that mm-hmm. it doesn't acknowledge the fundamental value of human beings. On, on the other hand, there's something deeply wrong with modern ethics which is that it has no conception of where human beings ought to go. Um, Mm. There's this thought that everybody should be standing on some kind of floor of prosperity and dignity and freedom. And then after that, the moral life more or less ends. Um, One way to put this would be, imagine we had provided everybody with all of the rights and material prosperity that we think they are owed. Um, What then? What moral life remains for human beings? And I think... Mm-hmm. modern people would have a hard time answering that question. Um, whereas my view of ethics is one in which ethical action is a um, open, creative, positive exercise of one's powers, something that is not a response to a problem, but hmm. something mean, new and yeah. gone. No, it's interesting that you describe it as open and creative because you know, some of what I hear in this is that, like, there are categories that individuals kind of fit into, and rather than try to be open and creative about it, they need to be more aware of what functions they are capable of and stick to those particular kind of functions. So another issue that you're sort of often brought up on is your views on women, which I think at most charitably could be described as you believe that they also partake of rational function, but that they do not have the will to act consistently on their rationality the way that men do. Um, do, you, do you feel like there are sort of functional differences between men and women that should determine, you know, what roles they play in society, for example? Well, here I'm a, I'm a little um, more inclined to adopt the modern perspective than I was as regards slavery. Okay. Uh, because my, my views on women, which are certainly sexist from the modern point of view, um, are, were informed by two problems. One is sexual dimorphism, um, which mm-hmm. 
which needed to be given an account on, on my theory that there is a single human form. And so why should we get two different kinds of human being? Um, and a natural answer for me was that one is a perfectly and one another is an imperfectly formed case of human being. Um, mm -hmm. We have a different answer to that now. And so that sort of story is no longer necessary. Um, and at the same time, I, I think it's important to see that my ethics is very deeply empirical. Um, I, I took the actual order in which um, I lived uh, and in which the Greeks lived generally to be the, the starting point of any kind of ethical or political understanding. Mm -hmm. And in that world, women seem to be generally incapable of political life. Um, not without exception, there were certainly women who had led political lives and theoretical lives. There were several women in the academy, for example. Um, but it was not something that you would find as a norm um, that women would lead political lives. Now, mm -hmm. at the same time, it's clear from any, even the briefest survey of the modern world, that plenty of women um, lead political lives, uh, that women are no worse than men at doing so, um, and that plenty of women lead theoretical lives. And again, women are no worse than men at doing so. Mm -hmm. And so there I'm much more inclined to revise my views just because my views were always empirical on those um, on that score and the empirical situation has changed. And so it looks like it was something about Greek culture that prevented women from leading political lives rather than the natural I think facts. That's, I think that's a good update. Um, so let's talk about your ethical theory some since we sort of did, we've, we've gotten in that, into that place. Um, my understanding of your theory, and correct me if I'm wrong here, just as quick, do a quick summary is that you believe that um, the purpose of ethics is to promote a life of flourishing uh, and the life mm -hmm. of flourishing is achieved via the habituation of settled, stable character traits that we call virtues that allow one to achieve one's functions properly mm -hmm. or well. Is that generally all accurate, would you say? Yeah, that sounds good. Right. And so that's, I mean, it's a theory that I'm very sympathetic to. It's one of the sort of pillars of my own kind of moral realism. And, but I want to, you know, obviously raise the various kinds of concerns that I think need to be raised here, some of which are theoretical, some of which are more empirical. But let me just ask you to sort of flesh it out a little bit more. So let me ask you, do you think, for example, that there's one kind of flourishing for all human beings? Do you think there are multiple lives of flourishing? How would you sort of give an account of the different kinds of lives of flourishing? Well, as, as, as I, um, as people often complain about, I, when they get to the end of the Nicomachean ethics, um, mm -hmm. I, I seem to have two distinct ethical lives mm -hmm. there. Um, and, and people have taken many different approaches in understanding that, but I, I think that there are two. Do you want to just say what those two are real quick, actually? Yes. The, the life of action, mm -hmm. um, where, on the basis of a conception of and a desire for the good and noble, um, one deliberates and chooses to act in, uh, particularly in politics. Um, and the life of action is the life of spent in this kind of activity, um, with this kind of exercise of one's um, intellectual mm -hmm. and characterological virtues. Uh, the other is the life of uh, thinking or contemplation or science. Mm -hmm. um, wherein the, uh, which I, I suppose I would describe as the life that is, um, um, 
most divine mm-hmm. that a human being can live. And it, it, there's a sense in which it's, it goes beyond what, what human beings are, or it's the life of the best part of us as opposed to the life of the human being per se. Um, I, so I do think that there are these two lives. And of course, the life of action admits of an enormous variety. Mm. Uh, as I said, I, I don't think that the life of action is a life spent solving problems. I, I think you're mm-hmm. um, the Superman sort of character um, mm-hmm. in comic books is would be incapable of happiness. That is, their uh, lives couldn't contain the kind of leisure that would make a happy life possible. They would have the problems of moral sainthood that Wolf talks about, I would say, where I, which is, I think, taking from your kinds of theories. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. That, that, that they would be unable to resist the call of duty, um, which would hound them day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And they would lead miserable lives in a certain sense. And, 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 and so uh, the life of action is a life of um, positive, deliberate, creative action. Uh, legislation is sort of my favorite example, um, but the, but there could be many kinds of such lives, uh, and I think that that admits of quite a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. Do you like, worry that that variety allows for kind of unavoidable vagueness, perhaps? So, I I think it's important to say what the my my ethical theory is, um, mm-hmm. or rather, to say that it isn't an ethical theory. Um, the, the purpose of the Nick McKean ethics, the purpose of any book on ethics, I think, is um, to produce good action. It's not to produce understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may be that understanding is an important part of that, but it isn't the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, the Nick McKean ethics was written as a prelude to a political work. Um, and the sort of good action that I envisioned it as contributing to is political action. Um, it, and it provides a kind of underlying theory for a conception of a state, namely what would constitute the happiness of an individual, what would constitute the happiness of a community. But but it's very important that the question of what to do, mm-hmm. I think, cannot be determined by philosophy. Okay. It, is a, it is a question of particular practical action. And though it is knowable in a, in a profound sense, a sense capable of constituting the happiness of a human being. Um, it is absolutely not theorizable. And so I, I, if my ethical philosophy is vague in the sense of providing very few or none, no practical bits mm-hmm. of practical advice, I, I take that as a, as a mark of its success. Uh, okay. So let, let's judge it by those cat features then, right? So you're, you're concerned with practicality and habituating effective good behavior rather than understanding do you feel like your system or some system that could be derived from your theories can actually properly habituate individuals in a reliable way and into a virtuous life i think that the book itself by no means is capable of that uh Mm -hmm. I, I don't think anybody reading the book, having been brought up poorly, for example, could make any progress having read it. Um, I, I think that the book, what the book would allow one to do is um, in engaging in political activity and to some extent in managing their own lives once they've been raised and are within mm-hmm. throwing distance of virtue, uh, would would allow them to 
get a clearer understanding of what lies before them and uh, particularly what kinds of traps to avoid. Like, for example, thinking that ethical behavior lies in philosophical understanding. No, so I'm just curious then if you feel like this worked successfully for your sort of most famous pupil, um, Alexander Mm -hmm. the Great, do you believe that he epitomized a life of virtue or do you feel like he's an example of maybe the, the the training didn't quite take properly or what are your thoughts on that 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 was a difficult episode i alexander was brilliant a brilliant student um i i began when i taught him homer and i i continue to think that that's the only thing he really took away from me was <laughs> was homer i I taught him my political theory. I taught him an ethical theory. He was obviously an extraordinary person, uh, but he was deeply immoderate mm-hmm. in every way. Um, his his passions uh, were I, I, well documented. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't say this today. I, at the time, I described him as um, having a uh, as being a hermaphrodite in his soul. Um, Hmm. Uh, as having a uh, something of a feminine character, but I, again, based on my understanding of the, the I see, I see the nature yeah. of women at the time. I, he, what you mean is that he was an angry alcoholic? I think is probably a more accurate modern description. Correct. Well, I I would say his central passionate feature was um, of a very deep and passionate attachment to people, including mm-hmm. me. Um, it, so. <laughs> One of the reasons I got in trouble in Athens um, was that Alexander insisted on putting a statue of me in the Agora. Um, the Agora is a sacred space in which statues are not permitted. Um, mm-hmm. No form of architecture was permitted. Uh, and this offended the Athenians. I thought it was a ridiculous idea, but he he loved me very deeply. Um, I, I don't know that that meant he listened to me much, but uh, uh, he loved all of his friends and his followers very deeply, his, his soldiers as well. Um, and I think that that was really the source of his difficulty was a kind of um, a kind of very intense affection, but it led to a sort of madness too. That is, he, empire is, I think, madness. Mm. Uh, the uh, an orderly, just political society must be limited. I think um, hmm. the idea of these ever expanding empires is doomed. Um, I, I, I say lots of things in my politics, things that might seem to be friendly to all forms of kinds of tyrannies or, or monarchical systems. Um, mm-hmm. um, but one thing I hope I am unequivocally against is empire, is um, expansive political systems. I, mm-hmm. That's something that he could never take from me. Um, Do you think that's... Uh, I, I want to bring in another um, sort of philosophical concept related here. Does it seem like that's the kind of luck that some, I mean, would you argue that a life of flourishing depends on luck and that uh, Alexander had bad luck with regard to his constitution in this kind of way? So I, I think there's a sense in which a life of flourishing definitely depends on luck. A life of flourishing depends on beauty, on wealth, intelligence, uh, a good education, um, a noble background, um, uh, a serious bearing. Uh, all of these things are important. Anything that would be important to uh, a successful political life is an important part of living well. Um, once you have those things, once you have virtue and once you have a good character, 
um, you are in a sense freed from, I think, fortune. Only the the most miserable and extraordinary fates could then disrupt your happiness. Um, but in the development of virtue, uh, luck is very important. Um, and, and Alexander was lucky in all sorts of ways, of course. Being, having the place that he did in the court of Philip. Right. But yeah, he he was certainly unlucky in other kinds of ways. Uh, that is... His, the problems of his character did seem to be very deep. Um, throughout his life, people tried to habituate him in different ways, and it, as it were, didn't stick. Uh huh. So, so something you just said there, it sounds like my, my interpretation of it was that there is a luck with regard to constitution on your way towards developing virtue, but that once you've developed that virtuous character, circumstantial luck is unlikely to be able to undermine it. That seems to me another claim of yours that has been substantially challenged by sort of modern psychological empirical analysis that, in fact, the very idea of virtues as settled, stable character traits seems to be sort of largely at risk given modern studies of those situations that cause normal individuals to suddenly act in sort of less than virtuous kinds of ways. Do you feel like we can still reasonably claim that there are such things as settled, stable character traits that will, you know, continue to motivate an individual who gets that invisibility ring and can suddenly get away with whatever they want? So I'm not, I'm not, I think, deeply familiar with that psychological research, but I, okay. I, I'm still confident in the position I, on the basis of what you say, maybe just because um, I, I acknowledged and, and do acknowledge that there are circumstances that can push people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, um, that virtuous people can sometimes act shamefully um, on the basis of overwhelming temptations or um, fears or things like that. Uh, uh, that that's not... That is, but but when they do these things, we say that they're acting uncharacteristically, and we say that they're acting in the face of um, something that would require superhuman resistance. Uh, you, you know, classically, Socrates was capable of a certain kind of superhuman resistance um, to temptation and to hardship. And uh, so, I, at the beginning of of Nicomachean Ethics Seven, I, I discussed the distinction between the virtuous person and the godlike person, where the godlike mm -hmm. person seems to go seems to be immutable, really um, untouchable by the world. Um, and it, you know, Socrates was centrally the sort of character I had in mind there. Um, um, but I, I I do think that virtuous people can be pushed too far, and then they'll do things that are that they wouldn't normally yeah. do. I think the concern, though, is often, though, that it's the thing that switches the person's behavior is not a superhuman inducement of any sort. It's not mm. massive, overwhelming coercion. It's, you know, the guy in the lab coat telling you to press the button or something like that, that it's the smell of, you know, fresh-baked bread in the air or mm. the color of the lights or things, things that are, like, fairly minor situational features um you know lack of oversight is a more substantial one you know the, the various kinds of features that make it easier to dehumanize other beings for example not having to see their faces and such like that um mm -hmm. you know ways that we can short circuit so, so i guess here's what i'm saying is um it seems like the point of virtue theory is to habituate the parts of our evolved psychology that 
push us towards various kinds of pro-social behavior, but that it, no matter how much habituation you do, it's very easy, it seems like, to still very quickly dismantle those pro-social behaviors in various kinds of environments. Mm. And so then at the end of the day, you know, when we make distinctions between virtuous and vicious people, are we really distinguishing between people who have settled stable character and ones who don't? Or are we just distinguishing between, you know, people who have different kinds of circumstantial luck and like some people went long and, you know, a much longer time before they got put in a bad situation is all. Mm. So the kinds of situations you're describing are situations, I think, in which um, we're we're primarily, and I think that this is the sort of thing that um, psychological research is apt to test, where we're primarily looking at people in terms of how they react to a certain situation, right? Mm-hmm. Say, reacting to the command of an experimenter to um, pull a lever and shock a, you know, subject or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm happy to admit that it's maybe even not very difficult to set up cases in which um, people might be deceived or tricked, especially to the extent that we can come up with technology for doing so. Uh, modern advertising is more or less the science of producing these sorts of effects. Um, Mm -hmm. But the home of virtue, the place to look for what virtue is and what it means for us is not in our reactions. It's in what we deliberate and choose when we are given the leisure to do so. That Mm. virtue isn't basically about reaction and a life, even a life of a virtuous person, um, in, in which they have to spend their life reacting to the world um, and having the right responses is not a happy life. That um, virtue is a part of happiness really to the extent that it it contributes to what we freely do. And so I, I think I would be more worried by psychological experiments that showed um, these kinds of effects impacting decisions like um, to get married, to have a child, to um, take up a new career, uh, to move to a different city, to run for office, that sort of thing. Also, De- yeah, decisions yeah. that take months um, mm-hmm. involve reflection, um, um, speaking with your friends, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What is so? What about like the um, uh, transcranial magnet studies, right? Where you can get somebody to flip from feeling Kantian to feeling utilitarian by putting mm-hmm. a giant magnet next to the, your head. Does that worry you at all? Um, no, I, so uh, my understanding of the soul, I think it should worry Plato, but, um, my understanding of the soul is that it is the activity, um, of a body with the potential for life. And so Mm -hmm. I think if you can come up with ways to manipulate that body, you, and affect how it acts, what it is doing, then do you have come up with ways to manipulate the soul? Well, so that raises a fun question then. If I can make a pill that people could swallow that would alter their physiology to turn them into virtuous people. Mm. Would you be on board with that? So I, I, I don't think it would be possible. Um, okay. So I would be happy to be on board with a pill that could uh, narrow the range of your experiences of fear, say, to be closer to a mean. Hmm. Um, but that mean would be relative to a certain culture and uh, the, the kinds of fearful things you might be encountering. Um, and so a different culture might need to take a different pill, as it were. But not, those things couldn't be virtuous. Um, th- those reactions couldn't be virtuous. And the reason why is that virtue is a reaction to the vir- a virtuous response is a something like a perception of how fearful, say, something really is. It, it, 
suppose you mm-hmm. made a, um, a computer, an intelligent computer of some kind, and you programmed into it all sorts of true beliefs. Um, it would maybe emerge from your programming um, with all kinds of beliefs. And those beliefs might all be true, but none of them could constitute anything like understanding because none of those beliefs um, is there as the result of an encounter with the world. Um, mm-hmm. That is the relationship between the creature with these beliefs and the, the world around them is, is not such that it could count as understanding. And um, you, ha- you feel like there has to be a direct causal relationship there. Yes. And, and so a virtuous reaction is a reaction in which you really yourself see um, under your own power what it, how fearful or how good or how bad a thing is. Um, and that's not something that I think one can have on the basis of a, as it were, lucky physiological shot. Mm-hmm. The, the pill would uh, uh, maybe make things quite a lot easier for you as far as habituation goes, but the pill couldn't give you virtue um, any more than a pill could give you a true belief or, sorry, a scientific understanding. Would it be okay to use the pill to make the habituation a little easier at least, right? Make your muscle build a little faster in the virtue department? Sure, to an extent. So I I, I think that the development of virtue, I I, I under-theorized this in the Nicomachean Ethics in particular because I um, didn't, I took it to be a book for people who had already passed the phase Mm -hmm. of their own habituation. Um, But the idea is that, um, um, you know, very young children are habituated by others. That is, their parents and their teachers. Um, and uh, uh, But once someone is around the age of, say, 12, you know, they're appro- approaching puberty, um, mm-hmm. They the work of habituation is their own work, and it can't be done by others. Um, I had a son, and I can attest to... <laughs> The fact mm-hmm. that they stop listening at around that age, uh, <laughs> uh, and and the only thing that will really motivate them and really change their character is their own sense of pride and shame in what they do. And so, I don't think that that kind of work is replaceable. That work one does on oneself, uh, the work, yeah. the earlier work, the work that we do on children by punishing and rewarding them, is I think work that is um, maybe more replaceable with a pill. Um, a, a pill might be something like it might be appropriate to, you know, an infant or something like that. But but most of the work of habituation has to be directed at internalizing a sense of pride and shame in what one does and having that be a self-driving force to um, mm-hmm. the completion of a character. That makes sense. I'm not sure I fully agree with you about the post-side part about, um, you know, later in life, your the project is 100% your... I, I mean, I agree with you that, like, you have to take some responsibility for the project on your own, but I do think that, like... There, there's a there's a social and communal aspect to it, but I'm sure you would agree as well. Thinking of, you know, the role of the the police and your uh, your view of things. So, yeah, I, I I suppose I would just say that the central and irreplaceable part of one's mm-hmm. characterological development is self driven. That's fair. I, I agree with that. Um, so you, you did mention a little while back, and I wanted to circle back around to this, um, Socrates as a kind of moral exemplar, as you, I think you put him in the divine category, right? Mm. Um, this is your teacher's teacher, of course, who famously chose to die for what he considered a virtuous death rather than escape what most would agree was unjust punishment. 
Um, and I'm curious because you sort of semi less famously, but still somewhat famously on the other hand, chose <laughs> the opposite path and fled with your family rather than be murdered when people tried to put you to death for basically similar kinds of trumped up charges. Mm. Um, and I'm curious what you think about those different choices, because I'll be honest, you know, I love Socrates, big fan. I kind of think that there's a bit of callousness to the way in which he sort of abandons his family and chooses death in that particular situation in the credo. And I'm curious if you agree that there there was a better choice for him to make there or if it's just different choices. So I, I, I've always loved Socrates as any, I think, mm-hmm. at some point philosopher does. Um, uh, and so I it's hard for me to think that he didn't make the right decision. His decision was quite different from mine um, for a number of reasons. So I guess centrally, I wasn't an Athenian. Um, I didn't ever really think of myself as an Athenian, and the Athenians certainly never thought of me as one. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that that my death could mean something for Athens was, um, it, I, I think it, it, it wasn't really tenable. Um, in the mm-hmm. same way, I, I, I was also being brought up on charges of impiety, um, for which I was much more guilty <laughs> than Socrates. Um, okay, Socrates. He was, pretty, was, he was pretty guilty, but sure, go ahead. Well, it's, it's, Socrates, at least. I, so I never met him, of course, but on my understanding, um, which is of course heavily influenced by Plato, Socrates was a person who acknowledged the power and authority of the gods um um i i mm-hmm. i didn't um i mm-hmm. i had no interest in greek religion, um in particular and i i i i you know one can read my topics and my sophistical refutations or my rhetoric and certainly get the impression that i'm teaching the youth to be powerful um in ways that they could use unjustly i i, I certainly didn't intend them to do that but th- the charges against Socrates were maybe particularly ironic, <laughs> um, and leveled against me. They were they they hit somewhat closer to home. Um, I, but really, I was attacked in Athens because of my relationship to Alexander, right? Um, and because of issues like the statue, that really didn't help. I and so I I didn't think there was much going on there in a way. Um, it wasn't a very interesting case. It was just the Athenians attempting to kill one of their enemies, somebody, somebody they had come to think of as an enemy. Um, and it broke my heart to leave the city. But um, a- another reason why the decision was quite different from me and for Socrates was that I could leave the city and I could travel with my family, as I did. Um, it turned out that wasn't altogether as soon as I finished my journey. But um, the idea of traveling to another city with one's family in after Philip, after Alexander, was not a difficulty, uh, especially given that I was going to a place um, where mm-hmm. I had many connections. Uh, to take one's family out of one's home city in Socrates' day would be an incredible hardship. With small children, it would be a death sentence. Um, hmm. Traveling in Socrates' day meant really uprooting yourself. Now, now suppose as as... Socrates' friends attested to that they would have taken him in in their cities. And then, of course, it wouldn't right. be a death sentence. They would be able to um, relocate themselves. Nevertheless, they would never be 
real members of any community. Um, the, the, yeah. the, the political significance of the city-state had vanished by the time of my death. Um, mm-hmm. But in Socrates' time, the, the city-state was just how things worked. Yeah, I mean, I understand. I just at the same time, going back to the conversation about, you know, um, uh, moral saints and such and the like, how that that kind of maximization kind of perspective can be a little harmful. I feel like, Mm. you know, uh, Wolf, I think, has a sort of quote in, in her moral saints where she says, you know, if someone can abandon everything for morality, it's not. We don't ask ourselves, oh, how much they love morality. We say how little they love everything else. Mm. And so I sort of feel like. When I, when I hear Socrates' story, I have a little bit of that, like, wow, he doesn't care about his family very much. It feels to me that way, at least. Um, as much mm. as, you know, I, I do respect his his work and all the other things. Um, well, as you, so. as you know, I sympathize, but Socrates mm-hmm. wouldn't have. Um, no. no. If, if you accused him of loving everything else very little, he would have said exactly right. Yeah. Nothing else yeah. is much loving. Yeah, I know. We're, nobody's perfect, <laughs> I suppose, right? Um, <laughs> so... Let's see. I just a few more little quick uh, fun questions before we get to our, our lightning round. I am mm-hmm. while we're talking about the, your um, death and whatnot. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the fact that um, Dante in the Inferno famously puts you in hell, and whether you're okay with that. Oh, he gives me quite a good place. I mean, I, it's I'm a very in nice part of hell. I'll give you yeah. that part at least. I'm in Elysium. I, I think he couldn't have done me any greater honor um, <laughs> as someone who didn't calling... know Jesus, at least, right? Yeah, without calling me a Christian, um, yeah. which which I'm 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 I have nothing against the Christians, of course, but I I have uh, uh, I'm glad not to have been you know mm-hmm. confused in that way. Um, <laughs> I how do you feel I, about their Christians' adoption of your? Um, I'm sorry, I just cut in here, but I also am yeah. curious. Like Christians took a lot of stuff from you, it feels like, and 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 from Plato as well. And I'm curious how you feel like that has worked out in terms of our modern islamo-judeo-christians as you influenced all of them in some ways i so so there are certainly little points on which i would argue with them though i think in a friendly way um so Mm -hmm. for example uh um there's been a long tradition in um uh, among the muslims and among the christians of uh, seeing my theology as something that can stem from um say just an argument about actuality and potentiality. Um, mm-hmm. I, whereas I, I would really insist, um, and I think I do insist in the metaphysics, that the only reasonable approach to theology is astronomy. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I don't think that those kinds of arguments, an argument, say, just from actuality and potentiality, are appropriate to the question of theology. Um, however convincing they may sound, they cannot be productive of knowledge. Like an argument from first principles or like the cosmological arguments you sort of to give us some yeah. examples yes mm-hmm. exactly and and beyond that i'm i'm happy i'm I'm happy that they got something out of my work i there are some places where I'm quite surprised i I would think my ethics is quite antithetical to um Christian ethics, which strikes mm-hmm. me as deeply stoical um That's and interesting uh uh well, the, well, my relationship to the Stoics is complicated, of course, but I, right. I don't think we have compatible ethical views. But it, I mean, if they can get something out of it and make it work, I mean, they're not beholden to being Aristotelians, of course. Hmm. 
And yeah, I think you're right that it is a little weird what gets adopted by whom. Because on the flip side of all of this, I'd, I've been wanting, I'd want a little bit to ask you like how you feel about the the pit taking up of your work by folks like Heidegger and Ayn Rand on the kind of very other end of the spectrum. Um, if you feel like they're also getting it wrong, just in a different kind of way. So I I think Heidegger never wrote a true word about me. Um, <laughs> It, it, the things that he wrote about me are interesting in all sorts of ways, but he's he's very deeply spiritually a Platonist. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I, Heidegger was a man of, as I understand it, very low character, and so I don't mean to associate Plato um, with him. <laughs> but I, we it, won't it, blame it, Plato for it. It's fine. <laughs> his reasoning is is much more of the Platonic nature um, than mm. her, being Aristotelian. I I. I I think he read all kinds of things into my work that are very complicated and obscure. Um, and I sort of don't know who he's talking about when he talks about my work, but they're very interesting. It's just not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, I just well, try to be clear. I try to describe the world as I see it. Um, I, I don't have any very elaborate games about being going on. Um, I, I sort of don't know what he's talking about. As to Ayn I'll Rand, have, I'll I, have Plato on to answer for Heidegger. So yeah, Ayn Rand. I, as to Ayn Rand, I'm I'm just a bit confused. I don't know that she she must not have read my politics, mm. where I, for example, suggest that um, the rich be taxed in such a way as to distribute a stipend to the poor, so that the poor can purchase a farm or learn a trade. I I I just don't understand. Um, how she could think of me as an ally. I, I I think my work on what human freedom means was deeply important to some modern political and economical views. Um, but mm-hmm. I find much more of myself in Marx than I do in Ayn Rand. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I see in her the concern that people raise in your work and things like the, the potential for tending towards elitism for mm. seeing the life of the rational being as being more valuable in, a, mm. in an important kind of way to all other kinds of lives and therefore that um, the well-being of the rational individual should be given priority um, mm-hmm. in a way that i mean to be fair like you i think would give priority to humans over animals which is potentially problematic on in the same way that kant does because of his love of rationality yeah yeah i i i I'm an unabashed elitist. Um, I, I think that the lives of human beings are worth much more than the lives of animals and plants, and that the lives of some human beings are worth much more than the lives of others. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, that's I sort of, an unavoidable problem with your theory, unfortunately. Well, I I sort of don't know. Ayn Rand's elitism is, is again, it's just very strange to me because she seems to think of these craftspeople as having a very high station um, because of products that they produce. And of course, that that's <laughs> that the right crafts, kind of elitist. <laughs> craftspeople are not living lives of any significance. Um, um, oh, except that's, to a, that's a sick burn. I really appreciate <laughs> that sick libertarian burn you just laid down. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I suppose I don't know quite what she's talking about. But <sighs> as to the elitism, I, I, I do think that... Um, there is a question, who, who is it that is capable of happiness? And I think that the answer to that question is um, um, that relatively few people are, and certainly very few beings are. Mm-hmm. And happiness is itself something extraordinary and valuable, um, and that m- many things ought to be bent in its service. Um, mm-hmm. 
obviously our technology exists there for the sake of our happiness, um, but also to the extent that something can be put to mm -hmm. use in that way, that is a person or a an animal can be put to use in service of the happiness of a human being is uh, something that we ought to do if that doesn't make it, if the person put to that use is not themselves made unhappy. Um, but if happiness is not possible for them, then I think it isn't, there's nothing wrong with this now, and and I can see how bad this sounds to the modern ear. But um, there are plenty of people now who see the purpose of their lives as being devoted to the happiness of other people, um, altruists, right? So mm -hmm. um, there's a tribe of people following Peter Singer who devote their lives to um, helping others. Now, of of course, if you'd suggested this to me um, when I was writing, I would have said, well. Precisely, slaves, right? That is what the life of the slave is. is, is it's a life devoted to other people. And, <laughs> it's the first time Peter Singer has been called a slave on this show. All right. Well, it, it, and, and, and as having a philosophy of slavery, of... of um, a, a neoplatonic slave cult, I think is the correct term here, yeah. Yes, that sounds good. Uh, I, the idea that some people ought to live lives, even lives of great hardship, in the service of others is, I think, not precisely mm -hmm. what... That is, it's not. That's not what people are objecting to. That's something many people find to be an appealing thought. It, it's just that they have to understand themselves not to be forced into that life. Um, yeah, there has to be consent involved. Yeah, um, and, and I guess we haven't even discussed your theories on consent. I don't. I don't know if you would <laughs> even. There's so much. There's so much more, and I realize that we're running short on time. Um, yeah. But yeah, do you want to give maybe any sort of just final wrap up uh, thoughts or suggestions or advice for people? living virtuous lives maybe sometime we'll have you back on for a part two and discuss all of the the problems that we didn't even get to yet yeah i so i i think that i have a bit of concrete advice um on virtue mm -hmm. that uh, people are remarkably bad at following um which is that one should practice and uh by this i mean very deliberately um and actively go and find something um, that strikes you as a beautiful or noble action and do it so as to take pleasure in it. Do mm -hmm. it for the sake of your own pleasure. That is, when you're a young person, you should understand that uh, uh, you cannot do things in a fully virtuous way. You cannot do things for entirely the right reasons. You have to do, at, at this stage in your life, you're doing them for the sake of shaping yourself into a certain kind of person. You should own that. And go out and practice and every week every month at least do something purely for the sake of shaping your own character this is somehow something people do not do and understand that coming to some kind of perfect moral theory um some kind of like justification for what you're doing is not Im important um you don't need moral philosophy to know what's good you can look at the people around you who lead happy mm -hmm. lives, the people who are um, manifestly beautiful in their goodness, and do what they do. There are societies in which uh, it is too, it, it, that are corrupt to the extent that they celebrate the vicious and they demean the, the virtuous, and it is impossible for people to tell what they should do when they are growing up. Um, but this is not one of those societies. Modern society is perfectly fine on this count, certainly no worse than Greek society. Mm -hmm. And it, it, there are plenty of exemplars. Copy them, mm -hmm. emulate them, 
take pleasure in the things that you're doing that are like the things that they do. Be pained by the things that you do that they wouldn't do. And acknowledge that you are running. Most of the people who encounter my work nowadays are students. Um, and so this is my message to them. Acknowledge that you are quickly running out of time. Once you're in your mid-30s, your character is what it is, and you will be trapped in your rotten soul forever if you have not made it something worth living in. So That's practice. a really good voidy button to put on that. I appreciate that. Um, as always with all your work, there's lots of things in there I agree with and a few things that I want to quibble with. But unfortunately, we are, are at near the end, and I need to put you through our lightning round. Okay. So, um, so for folks who are not familiar, first-time listeners, our lightning round, I will present you with a series of things. You will tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your two options. You cannot elaborate. You cannot hedge. Um, those those are your only choices. Do you understand? I understand. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Is your readiness real? <laughs> yes. Okay. Is the external world real? Yes. Colors? Yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Okay. Free will? No. Selves? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? I don't know. <laughs> uh, hmm. All right. Species? Yes. Uh, well, we're going to take I don't know as a no, by the way. <laughs> we have people who are doing um, scientific research about this, so they need to get a you know a binary answer here so we're gonna categorize that and as no unless you say otherwise i see morality yes rights yes knowledge yes gods yes society yes numbers yes fictional characters yes holes Yes. Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> Science. Yes. Natural laws. No. Oh, interesting. Beauty. Yes. Causality. Yes. And finally, dharmas. I'm sorry. Uh, the you know the sub smallest things that make up whatever the unit substances in in your language I think uh, would be an effective enough translation. Yes, on the mm-hmm. understanding that they're not very small. Yeah, whatever they are. Yeah, it's fine. Yes. We'll, we'll we'll leave that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. That was actually the first time I think anyone said yes to fictional characters. So I'm glad <laughs> that I put that back on the list. Uh, we were going to use it as a control, but now it no longer serves as a control. So. Um, I appreciate it, it, that. I, may I explain briefly the answer there? If you must, I think you may. My philosophy on this is um, one really ought never to ask whether or not something is a being, but rather how it's a being. Okay. And so, and so you you would say they are they are a being in some sense. Yes. Let us be liberal about what is a being, and then sort out how. Wonderful. I do appreciate that way of looking at the question. Um, well, well, thank you so much, Aristotle. I appreciate you showing up to have this conversation. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Um, in the past, uh, <laughs> substantially, um, in my works, uh, 
probably the best, most available copies of the basic works of Aristotle and and the the, uh, the complete works of Aristotle, um, um, the the Oxford editions. Uh, don't worry about translations too much; it's not that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, and of course on Twitter. Yes, of course I do have a Twitter account. So that is uh, at Aristotelus Thagira, um, mm-hmm. A R I S T O T L E S S T G R A. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I never expected to get to pose these particular questions to someone who I enjoyed reading so much. So um, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, all. Just want to give a special shout out to a bunch of new patrons who we've had join this month. Uh, thanks to uh, Piotr, Zeus, If You're Happy and You Know It, No You're Not, Buster Benson, uh, Iona Italia, Dane Rathbone, Clyde Rathbone, and Dred Zephyr, and Corey Thompson. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And thanks, as always, to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. We really got to get to Existence over on Philosophers in Space. Um, Good morning, Camp Quest. Give me those sweet, sweet utils. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And most of all, thanks to our top tier, still crushing it patron, Dave Maslich. I really do appreciate y'all so much for helping us uh, keep the dark on. So if you like the show, um, please support it by giving us, if you can, five-star ratings and reviews on whatever podcast app you use. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And support the show financially if you can at patreon.com forward slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void, and the void is you.